Plastic is a worldwide problem, and it's getting worse. Plastic waste is contaminating our environment, and it's contaminating our own bodies as well. So it's ironic to think that the organizations that are supposed to keep us healthy are among the largest plastic polluters in the world. Regulations intended to keep patients healthy often ignore significant environmental impacts, while corporate greed is forcing healthcare providers to contribute to plastic pollution against their will. This is the unfortunate and unnecessary impact of the healthcare industry today. This is a solvable problem that demands our attention, and this is Green Street. Hello and welcome to Green Street, the environmental health show. Patty and Doug Wood and our network of scientists, physicians, public health experts, authors, engineers, whistleblowers, and others all here on Green Street to help you understand a bit more about what is happening in the world around you, how you can protect yourself and your family, and how you can live a better, safer, healthier, and more responsible life in this increasingly contaminated world. Here on Green Street, we talk a lot about plastic pollution, not only for its devastating environmental impact on the natural world, but its undeniable impact on our own health. Today on Green Street, we'll be talking with an anesthesiologist from Yale School of Medicine who's trying to bring about much needed change in the ways healthcare systems deal with their environmental impact, especially when it comes to plastic. That's all coming up on this edition of Green Street, but first, here's Patty with the Green Street News. What do you got for us today? I've got three good articles, but I'm going to leave for last the one where we're talking about what happened to our Earth over the past year. Um, but let's first start with the EPA Chemicals Office, and this was in EE News, and it is entitled Burnout Expertise Gaps Plague the FDA Chemicals Office. Parts of the Office of Chemical Safety and Pollution Prevention lack badly needed personnel, according to agency staff, posing issues for programs focused on new and existing chemicals. EPA is aware of the problem and has noted the need to attract and retain staff within those programs, but critics say that despite the acknowledgement, EPA is doing very little to improve gaps or morale. It's been bad for a really long time, said Kyla Bennett, who directs science policy for the nonprofit watchdog group Public Employees for Environmental Responsibility, or PEER. I don't think the public fully understands just how bad. I think they'd be stunned if they knew. EPA's chemicals office is tasked with some of the most pressing work facing the Biden administration, including chemical risk assessments and research on PER and polyfluoroalkyl substances, or PFAS. Michael Friedhoff, EPA's chemicals chief, told the House Energy and Commerce Committee in October that her office was struggling, citing a staff under stress, operating with less than 50 percent of the resources needed to do their jobs. An overall lack of staff isn't the only problem facing the Office of Pollution Prevention and Toxics. Expertise in specific areas is also an issue. Peer noted cancer experts and inhalation specialists as examples of knowledge the agency currently needs. Without that insight, the group cautioned, some of the agency's most important public health work could be compromised. A leaked 2020 federal employee viewpoint survey for the office showed workers were unhappy with many elements of their job to a disproportionate extent relative to other parts of the agency. 
For example, across EPA, approximately 20% of staff felt that they could not, quote, disclose a suspected violation of any law, rule, or regulation without fear of reprisal, end quote. But for the Office of Pollution Preventions and Toxics, that number was 43%. It was even higher within that office's risk assessment division, with 56.1% feeling negatively about the issue. Those responses came during the Trump administration, which saw turmoil rock the chemicals office repeatedly. But employees say the problems are long-running and have continued under the Biden administration. Many of President Biden's top priorities run through EPA's chemicals office, and decisions made by the office's experts will have major implications for human health and the environment, a reality that Pierre said makes its personnel shortage a crisis. Some hurdles can be attributed to a loss of talent under the Trump administration, as well as a reliance on Congress for funding, which can be a drawn-out process. Bennett also pointed to industry pressure on lawmakers and regulators. Quote, I think industry has captured this division of EPA more than any other division. They don't want EPA to be powerful. They don't want EPA to be effective. Staffers did note that under Biden, the rhetorical shift has been huge. Friedhoff, the chemicals chief, has emphasized more time off and recognized the burnout across her office. But without more resources, employees worry that the problems will persist. This is so disappointing because I really thought when Biden came in, you know, a lot of people were going to come back to the EPA and we were going to have the EPA like we used to have. Looks like Trump has done, you know, lasting damage there. Yeah, I remember a conversation with a former EPA region head who said that if the Trump administration is in for four years, we will sustain like 10 years of damage. But if the Trump administration is in for eight years, you'll never get the EPA back. So we need another... A few years to get it back. I did think, just like you said, that some of the uh, people that left the EPA, some of their senior scientists and senior staff managers and so on, would come back once Trump was gone. But that doesn't seem to be the case. Well, they may be disillusioned by just what Kyla Bennett was talking about, which is that the agency is so captured that even if they come back, they'll have a little effect because the industry is calling the shots. All right, what else you got? Well, I have a quick press release that I would like to read from Americans for Responsible Technology. You may know the founder and national director. His name is Doug Wood. I do know that guy. Okay. The title is Nonprofit Groups Petition HHS and FDA to Declare Imminent Hazard from Wireless Radiation. A group of nonprofit organizations and private individuals led by the National Coalition Americans for Responsible Technology today petitioned the Health and Human Services Department and its constituent agency, the Food and Drug Administration, to publicly issue a declaration of imminent hazard and clarify its position on the safety of human exposure to radiofrequency radiation emitted from cell phones, cell towers, smart meters, small cell antennas, wireless kiosks, tablets, computers, and other wireless devices. The groups contend that the FDA is allowing and encouraging the misleading and false impression that it has engaged in a careful examination of the evidence, reached a science-based conclusion, and developed standards for human exposure following government procedures. It has not. We're asking a simple and basic question that Americans have a right to know the answer to. 
Where are the FDA's science-based standards for exposure to RF radiation, says ART founder and national director Doug Wood, whose organization represents more than 130 grassroots organizations around the country. The FDA is our nation's primary agency to protect and promote public health, and it has a statutory responsibility to evaluate the safety of wireless devices. This is an imminent hazard to human health. The FDA must act. The rapid deployment of 5G antennas in neighborhoods across the country, along with the national effort to make every school classroom wireless, has raised questions among parents and others as to the safety of near-constant exposure. The concurrent publication of more studies linking RF radiation to cancer, DNA damage, and reproductive and neurological problems has ignited a fierce debate over the wisdom of increasing involuntary exposure to RF radiation. The public is completely uninformed and unprotected, says Cindy Franklin, founder of Consumers for Safe Cell Phones, a co-petitioner in the action. Most people think the FDA is carefully evaluating the science and that FCC regulations are based on properly developed scientific input from the FDA. None of that is true. Ellen Marks, founder of the California Brain Tumor Association, whose husband developed a brain tumor after years of holding a cell phone against his head, says, quote, People all over the country are suffering from exposure but may not realize it's the RF radiation from a nearby antenna, smart meter, or router. RF radiation can cause headaches, dizziness, nausea, insomnia, inability to concentrate, and those are just the acute symptoms. Cancer takes longer to develop. We can't wait. This is a public health crisis that needs to be addressed immediately, end quote. So that petition was filed uh, December 21st with the FDA. Uh, they have about 60 days to respond. If they don't respond, then the petitioners are going to go to court to force them to respond. You know, I think a lot of people are laboring under that impression that the FDA has has evaluated the science because on the FDA's own website, it says, you know, we don't have any evidence that, uh, you know, that this is harmful. So you would think they've evaluated the evidence, which they actually never have. So we'll see what happens. What else you got? Okay. So my last article is entitled, Earth Became a Less Hospitable Place in 2021. And this was published in The Dispatch and written by Dave Golowensky. Here's a roundup of some of the findings and phenomena regarding the state of the planet reported this past year. Hundreds died during a June heat wave in which Canadian high temperature records were shattered on three consecutive days. Day three reached 121 degrees in Lytton, British Columbia, a town 90% destroyed soon after by a wildfire. June ended as the hottest month ever recorded in North America. Globally, July was the hottest month recorded dating back 142 years. The highest temperature in the Arctic, 100.4 degrees, occurred in Siberia. The Arctic, according to undated computations, is warming four times faster than the rest of the planet, jeopardizing cold-hardy species. For only the third time, rain was observed falling on the Greenland ice sheet. About 1.2 trillion tons of ice are melting each year. Greenhouse gas concentrations were at their highest level in 800,000 years, and according to the U.S. National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, global sea levels hit a record high in 2020. Altered by deforestation, a significant portion of the Amazon rainforest has become a net carbon emitter after serving for millennia as a carbon sink, the journal Nature reported. The collapse of the Amazon rainforest is likely to happen within 50 years, two separate studies have concluded. 
Some 58% of the U.S. West, covering 4% more land than in 2020, was in a severe, extreme, or exceptional drought after two decades of diminished rainfall and increased temperatures. Burned forests aren't growing back the same after wildfires. By 2050, researchers said about 15% of burned out forests won't grow back at all because the local climate is no longer suited to their requirements. Some 14% of the world's coral reefs were lost between 2009 and 2018. Ocean waters near the equator have become too hot for some species, forcing them north and south into less friendly waters. The ivory-billed woodpecker, Bachman's warbler, and the Scioto mad tom, a small catfish once found only in Big Darby Creek, were among 22 species the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service was preparing to declare extinct. Climate change was identified as the most influential predictor of U.S. butterfly decline, which has happened at a pace of about 1.6% a year for the past four decades, according to the journal Science. Plastic waste from COVID-19, most notably face masks, was found to be killing wildlife in the Netherlands, England, and Canada. As the planet spins and the future becomes more precarious for human life, plant life, and wildlife, nature turning routinely freakish can no longer be considered an anomaly or accident. A report card on the, the climate. Report card on the, on the earth yeah. and how the climate is affecting the earth in really, really um, frightening ways. Yeah. And it's yeah. only going to get worse. I mean, you know, COP26 was not, was not what we all had hoped it was going to be. No, it sure so was not. So this kind of reporting on all these different things that are happening, extinctions and high temperatures and you know, the world's coral reefs being lost and wildfires and all these things that are going on. Doesn't seem well, to have made an impact. No. A hundred degrees in the Arctic. hundred I mean, degrees you know, in the Arctic. You know, come on. 100.4 right. degrees in Siberia. Fantastic. Thank you, Patty. You're welcome. We think of hospitals as being places where people get better from whatever ails them, from broken bones and hip replacements to more serious life-threatening conditions and diseases. The well-being and safety of patients and staff is the paramount concern in healthcare facilities, and it's easy to understand how the manufacturers of single-use plastics have found a warm reception and a fantastic marketplace in the healthcare industry. Over the past decade, everything from bed linens to hospital gowns to surgical masks and even more complicated medical devices used in the healthcare industry have been developed for single use and are mostly made from plastic. A combination of well-intentioned but environmentally devastating regulations combined with the rapacious appetite for profit from the oil and gas industry, which is where plastic comes from, have made the healthcare industry one of the largest polluters on the planet. 
Dr. Jody Sherman is an associate professor of anesthesiology and epidemiology and director of sustainability at Yale School of Medicine. She is leading the national effort to make the healthcare industry more aware of its environmental footprint and seeking ways that the industry can play a constructive role in reducing pollution and supporting efforts to address climate change. Here's our interview with Dr. Jody Sherman. Human health is dependent on environmental health. That's number one. And my own interest began uh, just by observing the sheer amount of stuff we are using and stuff we are throwing away when we take care of patients. That stuff must be coming from somewhere. It must be going somewhere. It is obvious it has to be causing some harm to public health and environmental health, but there is no information or guidance on this. And so I made a pact with myself that I would not practice care unless I tried to uh, address that problem. Uh, what attracted me to come to Yale University was the opportunity to collaborate with environmental scientists, environmental engineers to, you know, be able to put some numbers behind and quantify what the harms are from care delivery to be able to guide strategic management. Where did you start? I mean, was there one thing that jumped out and said, this is our biggest problem is this? Well, the issue is if we don't have information on what the biggest problem is, then we can't mm. really do anything about it. So, sure. you know, people get really hung up on the amount of single-use disposable plastic. And it is a huge problem and it is something we should all be concerned with. But, you know, the, the responses and what a lot of clinicians do and particularly uh, a lot of hospital sustainability programs have started with OR nurses who have been trying to develop clinical recycling programs for medical plastics. Unfortunately, once you start delving into where the largest emissions are coming from, you realize that recycling hardly puts a, a dent in emissions. I mean, it, it's certainly better than nothing. And we need to transition to more circular economy, meaning eliminating the whole concept of waste and having more reusable supplies. But the problem by, by trying to, you know, it's, it's like trying to, trying to take a sip of water out of a fire hydrant. Uh, you know, and we're not going to solve that. We can't recycle our way out of the pollution problem. And it takes so much effort, particularly trying to uh, develop a recycling program in clinical spaces, because obviously we have unique considerations for prevention of infection transmission mm -hmm. and other occupational hazards. And so it takes a lot of energy to start and maintain a recycling program. And people, uh, in my opinion, waste a lot of time and effort on it. When really we need to move upstream to reduce waste and to reduce the emissions intensities of the products and care that we provide. So we have to, and certainly disease prevention. So we need to move upstream and address the core drivers of the problem, as opposed to trying to continue to sip out of the fire hydrant. Certainly preaching to the choir with Patty, I was going to say. <laughs> well, I love, I love that analogy, sipping out of a fire hydrant, because, you know, we work on a lot of environmental health issues and it seems very apt. Uh, for you know a lot of what we what we are are doing here, but I just want to, if I can separate the plastics issue in healthcare settings into two different categories: one where the plastics themselves actually contain chemicals that may be harming patients, 
Uh, we, you know, we started early on with that group Healthcare Without Harm uh, and, and did some work with them. But I mean, things like using DINP, which was a substitute for DEHP. I mean, this is, happens all the time. It's called regrettable substitution, yeah, right? We're substituting say. one chemical for another that has very similar types of properties and, and harm that it can do. So I understand the recycling issue. I mean, we, we recycle less than 9% of all the recycling that gets into the waste stream by whatever means. Hospital waste streams of plastic must be a little bit harder to deal with because like you say, there could be infectious, you know, diseases on, you know, on some of those plastics. And so you may incinerate them and create dioxane, right? Or when you're, uh, you know, when you're burning them, which is an air pollutant. Do you actually do that? Do you actually separate out the actual recycling, like from cafeterias and just from things like, you know, washing things and whatever, and then think about the plastics and how they actually might be harmful or the chemicals in those plastics might be harmful to patients. Right. Okay. Well, there's a lot to unpack there, but I would say that, you know, there are quantitative measures and qualitative measures that guide strategic management and Mm -hmm. mitigating healthcare pollution. So chemicals of concern, I would put in the category of qualitative measures, meaning we know some things, um, we don't know exactly how much there are and how much harm they're doing, but we know we should try to avoid them. So that that would be a qualitative type of measure and and strategy to try to avoid them. Mm -hmm. Um, As you point out, the, the problem with things like DHP, which is a plasticizer, it's a chemical added to plastics to convey a desirable physical property of flexibility, Right, um, but it is ionically bound and lipid soluble. So essentially it, it leaches out of the plastics, even a single exposure um, is measurable in human urine. The problem with all these efforts to try and eliminate DHP as an example, and it's the same problem uh, in, you know, in California, there was a big movement to get B, you know, BPH out of you know, baby bottles and Nalgene bottles. And it's the same, the same issue in that, you know, companies can, you know, such targeted uh, approaches, companies can then, you know, substitute a single molecule, call it something different. Mm-hmm. Um, and we don't know the harm from those substitutions. And, you know, if what's been substituted is any better. So that's the challenge with, you know, such initiatives going after chemicals of concern. Um, but certainly we should try to avoid chemicals of concern where known, we just have to be very careful about what we're actually substituting and not think that, you know, we are, the problem is solved, you know, by going after specific chemical. Exactly. Um, In terms of the issue that you brought up around waste segregation. And again, this is why, um, you know, I I would be reluctant to even spend a lot of our time speaking about um, recycling progress. But listen, waste segregation is very challenging in the clinical environment. Uh, I'm a practicing anesthesiologist. I can tell you in the in the ORs, there are at least 12 standard waste streams that I could talk about. And the challenge is that we are taking care of patients. And that comes first, as well as protecting ourselves from occupational exposure. Mm -hmm. So there are times where it's safe to think about which bin to throw things in. And there are times where it is not safe. And you need to do what's called up-classification, where you assume that the waste is the most hazardous and that's where you throw it. 
because that's the safest in terms of occupational exposure and management. Mm -hmm. And so could we do a better job through educating staff and, and taking into account human factors for waste segregation? Can we do a better job of segregating our waste? Absolutely, should we? Yes. But again, we need to move upstream and address the drivers of inefficiency, which is another term for, you know, another use of the word waste. And I don't want to be confusing. We need to address inefficiencies or wasteful consumption of healthcare resources upstream. And we have to address the emissions intensity or what's embodied in the products that we use to begin with. You know, I I would think that the healthcare system in this country is pretty powerful. And, you know, you, you know, as an industry could go to the plastics industry and say, look, A, some of the chemicals that you're using as plasticizers, and as you mentioned, to make them more flexible and so on, to make them easier to use in in a hospital setting or a health setting is really important. What else can you do? What else can you do besides using these chemicals? Because this is very problematic. I would think that there's some kind of power in the in the healthcare industry so that you could go go to the plastic. I mean, there are a lot of people who are working on plastics right now, you know, and they don't have that huge multi-trillion dollar industry behind them to demand safer products. But you do, I would think. Has that been addressed at all? Or thought. Well, I think, you know, this is a, again, there's a lot to unpack here. So the first thing you're, you know, you're rightly talking about leveraging the purchasing power mm-hmm. of healthcare organizations, um, not only to drive um, safer chemicals. And I would say there are a lot more, and I would say even more pressing issues than that. And that has to do with why we have so many disposable goods to begin with, because industry works very hard to manufacture obsolescence. So some things are better left as single-use disposable, things that are that are cheap, that are difficult to clean, um, IV tubing, syringes, needles, for example, those should be single-use disposable. But so many things we use in healthcare are disposable that need not be. The pulse oximetry probes, blood pressure cuffs, pillows, linens, complex surgical instruments. So things from simple low-risk devices to highly complex, highly expensive medical devices are becoming that are are single-use disposable and they're, you know, to the point where reusables are becoming less of of an option. And, you know, the, the underlying thing about healthcare that is unique compared to other industries is our unique mission to prevent infection, prevent harm. But there's been um, a lack of evidence for the improved safety profile of a lot of the disposables that we use. And in fact, um, industry is manufacturing obsolescence. This whole concept of single-use disposable is a, a label that is not a regulatory label, it's an industry label. What it means is that you know, if you want to clean a device and reuse it, you can. You just are responsible to for um, its function as if it were new. And so hospitals don't want that responsibility, so they throw things out. In fact, a third-party party industry has sprung up called medical device reprocessing. Really what that means is outsourcing of the cleaning. And so these organizations, or remanufacturing, if you're familiar with that term, and the right to repair movement, mm-hmm. that uh, third-party companies will take the devices, they will disassemble them, they will repair as needed. 
They will clean them. They will reassemble. They will test each individual one for function as opposed to new devices, which are batch tested. And uh, each device has to be, the reprocessed device requires FDA approval for procedures and uh, tracking for uh, a certain number of, of guaranteed uh, uses. And these devices are uh, divert waste and de novo manufacturing, and they are sold back at a fraction of the cost to hospitals. And so that's part of what serves what we call the circular economy, which is designing out waste, reducing waste, and keeping materials in use as long as possible. So a huge part of the plastics problem is the fact that so many things are disposable to begin with that need not be. And so industry is doing a lot of clever things by, for example, gluing uh, devices together so that they can't be disassembled, building in electronic chips that once you disassemble, you you know, the, the electronic chips no longer function. Um, not applying for approval for reprocessing to begin with. So there's all sorts of business models that are driving waste, driving obsolescence. Um, In the case of both devices and also drugs, there are expiration dates that are, are largely arbitrary, not tested. And so this is, again, manufacturing waste, manufacturing obsolescence. The problem are regulatory drivers, regulatory loopholes, that are driving excessive waste and consumption of resources. And, uh, you know, I'll give you an example of insulin. So I might use, for example, in the operating room, uh, five units of insulin on a patient. Now, when I first started, the the only size vial that we had um, contained over uh, 10,000 units. So imagine using five or 10 units and having to throw the rest away, or uh, now we're only at 3,000 units. And in fact, um, recently came, uh, developed a system where we would have a hundred unit bag, but I still need to throw away 97 to 99 point whatever percent of that drug must be thrown away because of rules against uh, splitting between patients, which are intended to, of course, prevent infection or rules about billing that vial was paid for by an outpatient. We can't split it because there's no way because one patient paid for it. And uh, so there are financial drivers, both in how healthcare is paid for and business drivers of waste and regulatory drivers of waste that need to be um, addressed. And the sad part about insulin is at the same time that the prices skyrocketed through private, uh, you know, the whole case of uh, lack of controls and and private incentivization that led to the skyrocketing of the cost of insulin, leading to patients in the United States dying because they're rationing insulin because I can't afford it. At the same time that is happening, at the same time that there are more diabetics globally than there is insulin manufactured globally, at the same time those are happening, I'm forced to throw away 97 to 99% of insulin when I use it in the operating room setting. And so this is what I mean by moral conflict, that we really have to address the drivers and not focus on recycling. Wow, Jody, I can understand the enormous pressures that you're up against. It's remarkable that you've been able to keep your head up and and pursue this in the face of all these these things. I'm astonished to hear about manufacturers intentionally making it more difficult to recycle their products. Not not 
terribly surprised, I suppose. You're listening to Green Street, and our guest today is Dr. Jody Sherman, Associate Professor of Anesthesiology and Epidemiology and Director of Sustainability at Yale School of Medicine. We'll be right back. Well, there's only one place in the universe where life can bloom and grow. But we're doing our best to screw it up like we got somewhere else to go. Let me tell you the facts you may not like. It's only a matter of time till the ice all melts and water comes up. What we're doing is really a crime. What are we doing? What are we doing? Messing things up in our own backyard. We can do better. We got to do better. It just can't be that hard. What are we doing? What are we doing? Making a mess and mess of this place. Come on, people, working together. We can save this place from the human race. Well, plastic, elastic, it's so fantastic, but it never really goes away. It all ends up in the ocean somewhere, and it's all coming back someday. So just you mark my words, my friends, we're gonna have to pay the price. When we're buried in plastic ten feet deep, we're gonna end up paying twice. What are we doing? What are we doing? Messing things up in our own backyard. We can do better, we got to do better. It just can't be that hard. What are we doing? What are we doing? Making a mess, a mess of this place. Come on, people, working together. We can save this place from the human race. So just keep on mining that coal, my friend. Keep burning that fossil fuel. When it hits 200 degrees outside, you better hope it can keep you cool. Cause our good old earth is burning up as anyone can see. Doing the same things over and over defines insanity. What are we doing? What are we doing? Messing things up in our own backyard. We can do better. We've got to do better. It just can't be that hard. What are we doing? What are we doing? Making a mess, a mess of this place. Come on, people, working together. We can save this place from the human race. Welcome back to Green Street, the environmental health show. Patty and Doug Wood and our special guest today is Dr. Jody Sherman, Associate Professor of Anesthesiology and Epidemiology and Director of Sustainability at Yale School of Medicine. Here's more of our interview with Dr. Jody Sherman. I wanted to ask you about about your ally. I'm sorry, I just want to just to clarify terminology. Um, reprocess and reuse. I'm not even talking about recycling. Okay. So it's got it. Yeah, of course. Of course. Sorry, my, my, my mistake. I did want to ask you about friends and allies that you have in this effort. I would think that you're the purchasing department in hospitals across the country. You know, they're all faced with this. Why should they pay? The, your story about the diabetics and the insulin is terrible, but why should they even pay for that insulin if you're not going to use it? And and I'm wondering if there's an uh, you have an ally in the purchasing department, and in fact, in in a network of purchasing departments across, as Patty was alluding to before, across the whole industry. 
Well, unfortunately, it's not so simple as that. I will say that, you know, every organization wants to save money, you know, public, private, everyone, you know, is concerned with the bottom line. So everyone wants to save money. So nobody would ignore an opportunity to save money. The the challenge has to do uh, with twofold, and that has to do with regulatory constraints. Um, I would say regulatory and oversight constraints around infection control and also around billing, as I just mentioned about how if, you know, we get paid for an ambulatory procedure, the, the billing structure is different than getting paid for a patient that is in the hospital for several days getting a procedure or being admitted after their procedure. So the, the payment structure is different. So that is one constraint on, you know, splitting um, doses between patients, which can be done. The, the doses in a vial, firstly, the vials are way oftentimes way bigger than we need for a single patient. And this is again, part of manufactured obsolescence. So you have to buy more than you need. There are, in some circumstances, depending on the drug and, you know, if it has additives or not, and, you know, refrigeration requirements, there are ways under sterile conditions in a pharmacy to split those drugs safely and share between patients. But again, there are some billing restrictions, so that has to be addressed on the regulatory level. And there are also oversight restrictions. So even if a, a drug for a vial, for example, has additives in it, meaning that it can be used on multiple patients safely using safe protocols, you know, alcohol swabbing the vial top, mm-hmm. using, you know, clean, you know, sterile syringes and sterile needles. Uh, oversight bodies have now prevented us from doing so in the clinical spaces, again, you know, because of concerns around infection transmission, which are yeah. important, yeah. but, you know, we need to address those, the, the drivers uh, that are preventing us from safely sharing drugs between patients in driving ways. So vial sizes are not are manufactured bigger than we need. I mentioned the expiration dates that force us to, you know, both with um, medical devices as well as drugs that are not evidence-based. Um, so uh, in terms of engaging the procurement department, even if something's cheaper, if there are regulatory constraints or there are oversight bodies like the Joint Commission, which um, is intended to keep organizations safe, make sure we're in compliance, but they also generate um, their own regulations that we must be held accountable to if we want to maintain our organization's accreditation and similarly local departments of health. So all these organizations have regulations that we are held accountable to that are well-intentioned, but but made in isolation, often not Mm -hmm. evidence-based and without consideration of how they drive up costs, how they they drive up pollution and how there may be alternative solutions. So organizations just wanna stay in compliance. So even even if it's more expensive to throw things away, organizations will do it to remain in, in compliance or fear of, fear of being out of compliance. So, okay, if I may wave a magic wand and put Jody Sherman in charge of all hospital sustainability programs, where do you go first? Do you go first to the regulators or to the manufacturers, or do you go both places at once? Well, if you put me in charge of hospital sustainability programs, the first thing that we need to do as healthcare organizations is do a complete accounting of our organization's carbon footprint. And carbon isn't the only emission of concern to be sure, but that is a place, the place to start um, for a number of reasons, given how 
It is compared to other things like chemicals of concern. Um, it is an area where the ability to quantify emissions is fairly well established and robust. So the first thing, if I were to wave my magic wand, all hospitals need to do is do a baseline assessment of their total organization footprint, not just their, their um, facility and transportation energy use, but also the footprint of their supply chain, meaning their goods and services. And there are standardized accounting frameworks for this purpose. And if you don't start there, you can't strategically manage the pollution of your healthcare organization. So you have to start with a baseline assessment. That's number one, and it must be comprehensive. It can't be just what we call scopes one and two using the greenhouse gas mm -hmm. protocol, which is a way of categorizing emissions. So scopes one and two, again, are the facilities. It has to be comprehensive. And hospitals need to publicly report those emissions and be held accountable to reduce those emissions. In fact, this is uh, what um, Assistant Secretary of Health and Human Services, Admiral Rachel Levine, uh, recently declared will be required for all federal health agencies. Hmm. Okay. Um, so this should be not just federal health agencies, this should be everywhere. We've written about this and the way to mandate it is to essentially tie it to payment structures such as the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid, because mm -hmm. virtually all healthcare organizations take money from government um, health insurance programs. And so any organization that takes money from CMS should be mandated to report their emissions, not just report them, but have a strategic plan in place in tracking progress over time to draw down their emissions according to what's called science-based targets and timelines. And this is what the international scientific community has stated we need to do to be able to prevent the worst harms, avert the worst harms predicted from climate change before the end of the century. That means we must reduce our emissions by 45% by 2030 and by 100% by 2050 or get to what's called net zero. And so healthcare organizations must start by, man by measuring their emissions to be able to develop a strategic mitigation plan according to these science-based targets and timelines. Well, there you go. Okay, that's a that's a that's a that's, that's a big. It's a tall some, tall order. That's that, a tall order, yeah. exactly. Well, not so tall. Uh, most organizations in industry, large organizations, including most S and P five hundred companies, are already doing what's called ESG reports or uh, environmental, social, and government governance reports. And uh, what this is, it essentially utilizing an international uh, reporting framework. So we're all measuring the same types of things in the same ways and being transparent in, in what those emissions are and being transparent in what our, our strategies are to try and mitigate climate risk and also address things like worker well-being, uh, fair labor practices, and so forth, uh, so that companies are being good corporate uh, mm -hmm. citizens. Mm -hmm. And so the, the difference is, and not even so much between for-profit, not-for-profit, not for as it is that, that healthcare organizations, healthcare delivery organizations, what I'm speaking 
speaking to specifically, have sort of historically gotten a pass because we're already doing good in the world. We're taking care of patients. The widget is the health outcome. It's not selling a particular product other than the health outcome. And since we are already doing good in the world, we believe and uh, society believes we we get a, a pass for causing some harm. If there's harm, you know, to be caused, you know, for the sake of of help, then, you know, maybe that's just the the cost of doing healthcare business. But in reality, much of that harm is preventable. And in fact, the healthcare industry should be the leading industry. I was just going to say that. I was just going to say that's exactly right. Okay, so this is complicated. This is a complicated thing to, uh, to, to get your arms around. What other types of environmental problems are associated with the healthcare systems? Besides your energy use and the, and the plastics, which we spend a lot of time on. Well, there are several types of emissions categories. Um, and the way we, we quantify emissions using environmental engineering tools, um, specifically called life cycle assessment, there are I, uh, something, it keeps, it keeps growing with something like 12 standardized reporting categories. And keep in mind that this is a, a means of quantifying emissions. So things like harm to, you know, ecosystems. There are measures for that. Eutrophication, which is about algae growth in waterways, which, you know, is is very common and, and chokes out ecosystems. So there are other standard emissions categories, other areas of concern not um, directly captured by those tools are things like pharmaceuticals in the environment. Now, there are unknown quantities of pharmaceuticals in the environment, but virtually every area of the planet is polluted with chemicals. Our bodies are polluted um, with chemicals. Uh, There's a famous work that began uh, called the Body Burden um, Work, which began with a group called the Environmental Working Group Mm -hmm. um, a number of years ago. And they did a, um, one of the things that they did, which was really quite profound, was um, a simple study of newborn cord blood. So taking a blood sample from Um, the umbilical cord right after babies were born, barely having taken their first breaths, not even consumed any of their mother's colostrum yet, and sent it out for testing for something like 267 chemicals of top concern. It was a small sample, something like 25 across, but across the entire United States. And virtually every sample was contaminated with virtually all of those chemicals. So babies are being born contaminated with hundreds of chemicals, and that's just what we're looked for. And so chemicals in the environment are things that are difficult to um, quantify. But certainly, again, this is about moving upstream, about mitigating harm, so reducing waste and improving the products that we use. And so in in terms of of the chemicals and pharmaceuticals that we use and the products, you know, green design and green chemistry is is really the area where innovation has to go. And that is designing out harm, designing out things that uh, don't uh, persist in the environment um, indefinitely. Uh, So we need to move upstream and innovation in those areas. So I have that that picture of the um, the fetus from the EWG, and it's a you know it's been hanging on my wall for many many years. We do know that babies are polluted, you know, before they're before they're even born. What about public water supplies that contain biologically active pharmaceuticals, things like hormones from hormone replacement ther- therapy or 
uh, you know, birth control pills, uh, chemotherapeutic agents, uh, you know, heart medications. Are the hospitals doing anything to, uh, you know, to try to get their arms around this issue? So, so to your point, yeah, plenty of studies that show that um, pharmaceuticals are ubiquitous in our drinking water. And in fact, plastic pollution is ubiquitous in uh, our drinking water, in our table salt, in our stool. It very common. Um, and in fact, even wildlife has been shown to have plastic contamination in their stool. So plastic pollution is a ubiquitous problem. Chemical um, pollution is a ubiquitous problem. In terms of pharmaceuticals being in our drinking water, uh, the problem is, is that there, there are no standard, there are no regulations to protect um, public health against this because the quantities are deemed uh, too small, um, meaning they're uh, not of clinically significant quantities. So they're so small that they're not deemed to have clinical activity. However, we don't know the effects of chronic exposures to small doses of any of these drugs, let alone their synergistic effects, let alone their effects on developing fetuses, developing wildlife and ecosystems. And that means we need to take what's called the precautionary principle, which is to assume they're not safe until proven otherwise. And uh, so we need regulatory protections against this. So that's one thing that needs to happen. The other is we, we need to address our over prescriptions, you know, over utilization prescriptions, our um, over consumption of over the counter uh, products. And again, working upstream to, to mitigating the waste and consu unnecessary consumption of materials to begin with. And in terms of what hospitals, not just hospitals, but certainly hospitals could do, there are technologies that are um, in development and I think already actually beginning to be applied in Europe, particularly in the Scandinavian countries that work to using reverse osmosis and other technologies to treat wastewater coming out of hospitals. And in fact, not only should it happen in hospitals, but given how much of our prescriptions are consumed in the communities and how much over-the-counter medications and uh, beauty products are consumed even more so outside the walls of hospitals in our homes, that these treatments should be standard in all municipal uh, sewage systems. We need wastewater treatment systems, um, both at effluent out of hospitals and in our municipal um, waterways. And uh, it's just not mandated. It requires an infrastructure investment, um, requires regulations to mandate it. And this is going to take investment. You know, this is such a fascinating discussion. It really is. I'm really in awe, frankly, Jody, of your, uh, your efforts here to, to bring hospitals and the whole healthcare industry into line with the rest of the world. And I, I absolutely agree with your comments about climate change. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, right now we're, you know, we're looking at a water supply here on Long Island, um, just across the sound from you where one for dioxane coming from, well, from some industrial processes, so there's some, so there is some legacy contamination, but mostly from liquid laundry detergents and shampoos and liquid soaps and so on that people are using. And I'm especially concerned about laundry detergents because it comes in, you know, like a gallon jug. You could get, you know, like 15 little bottles of shampoo um, into that. 
But how do we determine which one of these things that contaminate our water and our airspace and so on are the things that should be, how do we prioritize them? That's a great question. I'm not sure that laundry detergent is the highest on my list, particularly because there are biodegradable products. There are uh, yes. there are containers that are biodegradable. Um, so there are opportunities. So in terms of which is the the most harmful, you know, this is where we have to turn to the science. For example, the Body Burden Study, the Environmental Working Group, can certainly, you know, has looked at hundreds of chemicals, and so there are, there are ways of prioritizing the ones that are of concerns. Do we really need, you know, all the the products that we use? Do we really need all the prescriptions and the medical procedures? The vast majority of health is determined not by healthcare itself but by things like having a livable wage, living in a, in a community that is, has clean air and uh, you know, addressing what are called the social determinants of health. So addressing economic disparities and, and also ex, uh, environmental disparities, including looking at red line districts. So those are to me higher priorities in terms of how, how to prioritize what we work on. Uh, but certainly climate change has been named the number one public health issue of the 21st century. The uh, greatest killer today is through air pollution. And it turns out that both greenhouse gases and toxic air emissions both stem from consumption of fossil fuels. So, you know, certainly top priority uh, has to be uh, mitigation of fossil fuel consumption. I just wanted to comment quickly. Um, you know, we live close to the um, the the main um, center for the Northwell Health System down here on Long Island, and when you go past their campus, I mean, it is just pumping out the power and you know the lighting, and I mean, it looks like a city. And it is just like on, 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 24-7. Well, it's, it's interesting that you say that because healthcare organizations really are many, many cities with, you know, their own electricity needs and sometimes their own supplies, need for food, need for products, need for, you know, uh, consumption of other products, need for waste, treat, you know, waste treatment, sewage treatment. So healthcare organizations really are many cities. And so they really need a multi-pronged, uh, sustainability program. And this has to come from the high up. It has to be mission-based. Um, it can't be a green team of do-gooders, as we like to say, of, of people who are well-intentioned and really care, but can't be very effective if, if they're working in isolation. Sustainability has to be integrated into the mission of the healthcare organization, because that way it gets integrated into all strategic operations and functions including uh, procurement, um, as you pointed out, including waste management and including clinical care, how we deliver care. Yeah, if I just might add, you know, one more thing, if you were to ask me, um, you know, what would be really important to address? And that is, uh, we've got, uh, if you'll forgive the phrase, an epidemic of uh, inappropriate care. And what do we mean by inappropriate care? We mean care that is unneeded, unwanted, um, and ineffective and inequitable in its consumption of resources. And so we've got an epidemic not only here in the U.S., but globally. Globally, one-fourth of care is deemed low value or inappropriate. In the U.S., it's about one-third. It's important to recognize that uh, the vast majority of good health comes from 
factors outside of healthcare delivery. And so oftentimes what is ailing us is not knowable, there's no test for it, um, is not treatable, there's no magic pill or surgery for, um, and yet we continue to seek out care. And so, you know, part of this is an appeal to um, personal responsibility and expectation setting of what is knowable and treatable. And that's both on the patient side and on the clinician side as well, that there are consequences for inappropriate care that includes consumption of limited resources. It includes uh, spending money that uh, means, you know, 11% of our population is uninsured and so money can't go to help uninsured patients. Um, It also means that we cause harm because inappropriate tests and inappropriate care has um, unintended consequences leading to medical complications as well and death. And so, and, and also coming back to death and that has to do with our expectations around end of life care. Um, and we need to have uh, better conversations and expectations about how we wish to die and what is possible in the dying process. And medicalization of dying is causing harm and um, is not leading to um, happiness or better well-being. And with that uplifting thought, we come to the end of another Green Street Show. Patty and Doug Wood and our guest today, Dr. Jody Sherman, Associate Professor of Anesthesiology and Epidemiology and Director of Sustainability at the Yale School of Medicine. If you missed any part of today's program, you can always hear it again on our website, greenstreetradio.com, where you can also sign up for our program alerts and send us your comments about the show. That's greenstreetradio.com. That's going to do it for today's show. Special thanks to our guest, Dr. Jody Sherman, and our assistant producer, Ellen Weiniger. Patty and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Street. Until then, be safe, be well. We'll see you next time.